0: I can't believe
1: it. Yes, I know. It's good to be back. It's hip to be square and all of that. I mean, it's so good to be back. I mean, I could barely find the studio door. It's been such a long time.
2: When I'm out on a walk
1: With my tree lady talk I can tell you I'm in pie. Great to be interviewing Julian Forbes there again. You may remember he was on uh, Series 2, Episode 7 and Another Thing. You may remember Julian turned up in court something like this. All rise! Court in session! <laughs> Nolian Drummond and and honor me, you stand before this court today, charged with the unlawful removal of a woodland to DPO restrictions. <gasps> How do you plead? Once again, I would stress that the advice is not clear, I've said this time Order. and time... OK, class, well, pay attention now, because I will be asking questions later. Underhill, stop staring out of the window. I did put something together earlier as a sort of a crib sheet so that you can sort of try and follow along, um, but you'll be a little bit ahead of the game. So have a listen to this, this is what I put together slightly earlier on today. For those listeners of a fragile disposition, please be aware that the following edition of Tree Lady Talks will contain the following. The Forestry Act, 1967. Section 15.1. Section 15.5. Section 15.6. It will also contain words or phrases, including, but not limited to... Felling license, the forestry commission, 9,000 cubic meters of timber, a felling license granted under extremely shady terms, and the words, fraudulently, statutory background, Mm. lied, prosecutorial jurisdiction, and a phrase that lives in my memory... No such thing as a tree reservation or a consent relating to a tree, where a felling license would be required. Huh? Confused? Well, you don't need to be because here he is. Let's get him in. It's Julian Ford's laird
0: Welcome back to Julian Ford laird Julian, we're so excited to have you on the podcast again because. You are our highest ranking, fastest downloading, continuingly downloading podcast, and it really set the industry on fire. Janine, could you start off, please, telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me back. Um, So so I'm an arboricultural consultant, um, and the bulk of my work, um, for some reason, appears to be adversarial. So this could be in relation to uh, planning, or, or litigation, or indeed um, tree preservation order prosecutions. Um, uh, in terms of litigation, it regularly involves um, accident investigations, unfortunately, uh, which we could all uh, do without, I think. Um, and in terms of the planning side, it's it's mostly public inquiry based based work. So I've been an arboriculturist. Um, uh, well, if I if I include uh, my time as a climbing arborist since 1990, which is quite a long time ago now so I had 10 years on the tools and then I've been a consultant since 2000.
0: Well Julian you had a bit of an interesting background before then as well didn't you two almost diverging interests and professions.
2: I uh, studied for a master's in war studies and international relations at King's College London and I was was going to be a defence analyst before the end of history uh, and uh, the uh, uh, permanent peace that we were promised would result from the Berlin wall coming down and the collapse of the iron curtain um and uh, i happened at the time to be working to pay my way on the master's course for a local tree surgeon and so i just sort of stayed doing that i would say i'd never looked back but maybe i've never looked forwards so we'll see
0: So, the subject of their previous podcast was really Operations Note Number 52 by the Forestry Commission, which sounds like the most boring title for any podcast out this week, but actually it really struck a chord with people. And since that first podcast last year, there has been a decision in the courts. I wonder if you could, to start with, for the listeners, give a background on why this is such an important issue.
2: Yeah, sure. So this so this dates back um, to the grant in 2016 of a felling license by the Forestry Commission to Highways England Limited, which at that time was was a, a separate company, uh, wasn't again a pure agency of the of the government, even though it was wholly owned by the government. Um, and this felling license uh, concerned uh, trees on the trunk route network as far away as almost 200 meters from from the roads to which they they loosely related and the felling license was granted under extremely shady terms so um the first thing that happened was highways england limited and the forestry commission entered into a memorandum of understanding of how the relationship between these two would be governed and on the back of that the highways uh, highways england limited applied for a felling license and um with the full knowledge of the Forestry Commission, fraudulently omitted to check and notify the Commission as to whether any tree preservation orders or conservation areas applied to the trees within the scope of the felling license. Now, if you imagine a felling license covering all trunk routes in England, you could well imagine there'd be many, many hundreds of tree preservation orders, uh, possibly thousands and all conservation areas covering the trees concerned. So uh, as a matter of complete bewilderment on the application form for the felling license uh, to the question, are there any TPO or conservation area protections in course uh, In force, uh, Highways England Limited ticked no uh, when they hadn't checked. Forestry Commission knew they hadn't checked. And the felling license was therefore granted on, on, on terms that were knowingly fraudulent. And this really matters because it is only upon that box being ticked, yes, that the Forestry Commission notify local authorities that they're going to grant a felling licence, if that's what they're going to do, as it was in this case. And then the local authorities, per section fifteen one of Forestry Act 1967, become a cons- consultee party to uh, the felling licence application. This enables local authorities to object to the grant of a felling licence, whereupon the authority to grant such is removed from Forestry Commission and placed with the Secretary of State in what effectively becomes a tree preservation order appeal. Also, Forestry Commission has the power to refer felling licences for determination to authorities. Is a separate mechanism, doesn't concern us here. So what does concern us here is the, um, I keep using this word, but it is the right word, the fraudulent um, prevention of local authorities from being a consultee to, um, tree preservation orders uh, affected, or trees under preservation order affected by felling license applications. Now they sought to square the circle by attaching a note on this felling license that said, oh, it doesn't cover TPO trees and conservation area trees, uh, and you must still apply for consent from the relevant local authority before taking such trees down. But of course, firstly, there is no power in law for that rider to be applied to the felling license uh, because section 15.6 of the Forestry Act 67 makes it clear that when a felling license is granted, it's irrevocable in respect of trees covered by preservation orders or conservation areas. But even more importantly, section 15.5 of Forestry Act 1967 prevents local authorities from even entertaining applications for Uh, felling of trees where those trees are subject to the requirement of a license at section 91 of the forestry act. So in other words, they are statutorily disbarred from a TPO application and or granting a TPO uh, consent. There is therefore no such thing as a tree preservation order consent relating to a tree where a felling license would otherwise be required. That is the statutory background. Um, and, and I came across this approached by um, a client who was being prosecuted by a local planning authority uh, for felling trees subject to a tree preservation order, where those trees were a requiring of a license under section 91 of Forestry Act of 1967, and B benefiting from a felling license, namely the Highways England felling license. So these these trees already had the protection of uh, Section 15.6 felling licence being granted on TPO trees. The local authority knew nothing about the highways England felling licence. And the first thing it quite properly did, when it was told that that areas of woodland were being felled, allegedly by my my client, they contacted the Forestry Commission and said, "Um, have you got a felling licence? And the Forestry Commission said, no, there are no permissions for felling in force at this site. So it lied. So when we were able to find and produce the felling licence and show it to the Forestry Commission, so well there is a felling licence so could you please change what you've said to the local authority because they're about to prosecute my client who thinks there isn't a uh, by saying there's no licence then they said oh well the felling licence doesn't apply to your client because the name on it is highways england limited
0: there'll be lots of land up and down the highway which isn't within the ownership of the highway authority but the highway act still applies
2: yeah yeah exactly so that's
0: rather strange
2: yeah so the forest commission sort of say the felling licenses stay with the applicant on the license right they don't stay with the land but that's contrary to a what we all know to be true
0: that's exactly right
2: and b forestry commission's own published guidance which says that if you transfer your land the felling license transfers to the new owner and you're the new owner is advised to tell the commission that it now has the land and the felling license but it's not under an obligation of law to do this certainly doesn't stay with the applicant so they the commission sought to maintain this and say therefore the um, our client didn't have the right to implement the license because he wasn't the applicant which is a completely new completely new, <laughs> completely new position to take so
0: when one applies for a felling license you have to draw a polygon on a plan and that is the area which you're applying for You fill in the applicant details, but it rests with the land, not with the owner. Oh, absolutely. I'd like to also ask you a question before we go on about this specific case. This felling licence that was granted by Highways England, has that expired or is it still current?
2: It's expired now.
0: Do we know the impact of that felling licence? Do we know how many trees were felled? Is there any record?
2: No, no, I I don't have any information about that. All, All I can say is that it covered... Over nine thousand cubic metres of timber, which is not insignificant. Amount.
0: And you don't know of any cases where there's been some trees protected by a tree preservation order or within conservation areas where there's been felling of those trees by Highways England. No, No. so there's no data on that.
2: No. No, Okay. Yeah, there may well be information out there, but I just don't. I just don't have it.
0: Do you know if that felling licence is going to be renewed by Highways? Is the same thing going to happen again?
2: I don't think it I don't think it will um, because they've had their fingers very badly burned as a result of this. And whatever else happens, I don't think it'll be if a new license were granted, it wouldn't be granted in the same way and, and wouldn't be granted with the um, without the necessary checks. that that's my personal view. Um, it would be amazing if they tried to pull the same stunt a second time and I, I don't think they will.
0: Okay, thank you. I just wanted to put that in context. Um, But to carry on with this case.
2: okay. so we demonstrated that there was a felling licence and then we argued the point that the felling licence ran with the land and not with the applicant, which the Forestry Commission did well, (laughs) didn't at the time accept. So there's then the question of saying, well, the local authority doesn't have prosecutorial jurisdiction because it's not able to even determine, it even entertain an application for TPO, TPO consent because of section 15.5 of Forestry Act 67. So if it can't grant consent, how can it possibly prosecute for an absence of consent? Uh, my, my point on this is that, that one cannot criminalize failure by the citizen to pass an impossible test. And that is the logical position the local authority were seeking to take. And it just seemed a nonsense to me. Um, so in July, uh, 2020, the Forestry Commission published its operations note uh, number 52, um, which is called Felling Licences and Tree Preservation Orders. And it sought, uh, this note sought to clarify the law on, on these matters. But the reality was, it, it's almost certain that our note was prepared to to shore up this particular case mm-hmm. because it related to just so specifically the issues at, at hand. It would be a very striking coincidence Otherwise, and in the note, it says, Consider the following scenario trees subject to a TPO are felled. The felling was of a scale where a license would ordinarily be required. Neither a felling license nor local authority consent to fell the trees subject to the TPO is in place. So that's the scenario.
0: For those who aren't familiar, we're talking about the timber being of such a scale that the felling license is required. Just to put that into context, we're talking about one really large tree or a, a two or three medium-sized trees in what we call a calendar quarter, which is obviously January to March, etc. It's really not very many trees. And for those who are listening outside of the UK, a felling license isn't needed in somebody's private garden. And it isn't needed if somebody's got planning permission and those trees are shown removed on an approved drawing, but it is needed in say an industrial estate or brownfield development before planning applications put in it's not just a farmer's land it's not just a woodland up in scotland you know it is everywhere apart from a very few exclusions such as churchyards private gardens some types of designated public open space so we're not talking about lots of trees in rural areas. It could be within any town apart from the centre of London boroughs. It, it's really everywhere. And I, don't, I know that this isn't widely understood and conversations I have with clients. So I just wanted to put that in context with this operations note.
2: So I, I've set the scene from the operations note. They've come up with a scenario of, of trees subject to a TPO being felled that would have required a felling licence and uh, neither TPO consent nor felling license was was granted. And so the operations note advises that, and I'm quoting, two offenses are committed in the above scenario. An offense is committed in relation to felling without an through felling license, where one was required per section uh, 17 of the Forestry Act. In addition to this, despite the local authority being unable to grant TPO consent directly, the absence of a approved felling licence mean that TPO consent is needed and therefore an offence is committed under Town and Country Planning Act as well. So what they've done is they've got apples and oranges, could c- apples and oranges, and they've sort of made some kind of rather unpleasant fruit salad out of this thing. Um, and it, it's absolutely a, a, a legal nonsense. Well,
0: it is an illegal nonsense, but it's widely practised.
2: Yes, it is. Oh, absolutely. Because most local authorities don't know this.
0: For example, they don't know it. They expect no. a TPO application um, if it needs a felling license they expect that and they will issue that this is this is common and widespread as we will find out malpractice
2: yeah ab- ab- absolutely, absolutely absolutely so so that is the so that was the advice in the in the operations note and and most interestingly that advice flatly contradicted the advice given by the forestry commission's regulations uh, management team uh, in, in another case, in a case within Warwick District where this precise issue um, came up and Warwick District were, were shaping up to prosecute somebody, they prayed in aid to this aspect of, of, of the law and the Forestry Commission at their request wrote to the local authority and said, no, actually you can't prosecute because you don't have jurisdiction because of Section 15.5 of the Forestry Act and, uh, and uh, the trees had a felling licence, so, so that's that. Um, so they contradicted their own published guidance, and well of course everybody's allowed to change their change their mind, which is which is what they said they had had done. However, uh, for that to be right, it would have led to this difficulty that I mentioned earlier of criminalising the failure by a citizen to pass an impossible test. and quite clearly that's contrary to natural justice, and it just simply can't be can't be a thing. So um the local authority prosecuting went ahead uh, with the prosecution uh, shored up by the forestry commission's. Um, stated opinions on these matters, and we were due to go to court. So what happened next was uh, the defense uh, filed an abuse of process motion with the court. So w- w- what this said was it invited the court to accept that the attempt to prosecute was an abuse of the process of the court. In other words, it was, if you like, a manipulation of the court. Mm-hmm. Um and abuse of process motions are, I'm told, as rare as hen's teeth, and those that do go before the courts almost invariably fail. Getting one over the line is is seriously uncommon. Um, that's what the uh, barrister in this particular case uh, said, jo- Jonathan Ashley Norman QC, that was what what, what he said. So the um, abuse of process hearing had not happened when you and I last spoke.
0: Mm-hmm. I know and this now, is why it's so yeah. interesting so, so, and very so now important. We're up, so
2: now we're up to date by the end of the previous podcast, um, and so we can we can see what happened in court. So the prosecution called two witnesses, um, and they were they were both from the Forestry Commission. Quite remarkable, both from the Forestry Commission. Uh, one was a person who was junior to the other within the particular department, the reg- regulations management.
0: Department. Can I ask a question here, Julian? Was, was that department in the same area, region, regional area?
2: It's head office. It's a sort of central department. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They asked questions um, of, these, of these two. The more junior person went first. And, and on the thorny subject of felling licenses running with the land or staying with the applicant, the more junior of the two said that it stays with the with the applicant. So that if the land is transferred, the new owner has no entitlement to enact the felling license. Ten minutes later, uh, we then have the more senior of the two forestry commission staff members on, who says the opposite, which was quite an amusing moment in court and caused some raising of the judicial eyebrow, because normally if you get two witnesses on, they don't contradict each other, but they did in this particular case. So um, so that that was an interesting interesting piece of theatre. But anyway, um, the defence laid out its. Laid out his position uh, on the law and made the points that I have referred you to already. Um, and then we all went away again and we waited for the judge's decision. And she concluded that the attempt of prosecution under the circumstances was indeed um, an abuse of the process of the court. And she said that if she was wrong, then alternatively, uh, the offense that was being attempted to prosecute was one that was unknown to law. Because there was no route that was navigable from the Forestry Act back to the Town and Country Planning Act. so that if an offense had been committed, the offense was felling of trees without a license, except that in this case, there was a license um, and not felling of trees subject to a TPO without consent because no consent was available.
0: So in other words, if somebody fells a tree protected by a tree preservation order, but it has a felling license, the local authority has had their chance to raise an objection to the original felling licence, (laughs) which is an interesting matter, isn't it? And not straightforward.
2: The local authority might have had its chance if the application for the first felling licence in the first place had declared the existence of the tree preservation order. Exactly. But in this particular case, of course, that was never done. So therein lies therein lies the problem with this particular felling license um so there we are the the prosecution was stayed my client was uh, the defendant was discharged and there is then the question of what happens next the first thing that happened next was a costs application was submitted to the court which the judge duly considered um and she ruled in favour of the uh, discharged defendant awarding him 102,000 so pounds of costs against the local planning authority concerned so that is uh, that's gonna cause senior officers and hopefully members to sit up and take notice mm-hmm. and ask some questions as to why this why this prosecution was was allowed to go forward as far as as far as it was
0: this is tree lady talks and i'm sharon durden holmberg all music and production is by Noel Durden-Tollenby. And all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal.
2: So that's where we got to in that particular case. But by then, I had a second case pending. The the second case um, concerned, I refer to it as a, as a rotten borough. We'll leave it at that. Um, And this particular local authority had had, um, been notified of the felling of um, a handful of trees on the edge of a woodland. Um, the those trees were subject to a tree preservation order.
0: Just for the listeners here, you say they've been notified that they were going to be felled. By that you mean the forestry commission.
2: Oh, sorry, forgive me. No, so they've they, they been notified that they were were being felled. So so people have yeah, so so people have called the local authorities and said we're worried because trees are being felled in this woodland.
0: Yes, and that um, happens a lot when you're a tree officer. So I used yep. to be a tree officer and you get calls from people saying this is happening now and you go and investigate. But in terms of the consultation process from the Forestry Commission to the local authorities, years ago the Forestry Commission would send a weekly list. But now that doesn't happen, does it? It's down da- the onus is on the hardworking tree officer who's probably got four million things on his or her plate to actually check that themselves. So actually there isn't. The, the procedure is still there, but it, there aren't the safeguards, there aren't the check systems unless they put them in themselves, so it's actually not as straightforward as it used to be. Would you agree with that?
2: Well, absolutely, because the requirement in the law is for the Forestry Commission to notify the local authority if it intends to grant a felling licence on trees over which the local authority might think they have uh, jurisdiction. Um uh, now, this notification of verticom is simply publishing it on the Forestry Commission's website. Yes. So, it, so, so it, it has it has ceased being an active thing and is now uh, on the Forestry Commission's part. And now, is an active task for the for the tree officers. And, yes. I, and I, I, fully expect many tree officers don't actually check very often because it's 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 onerous, as you say, and they just don't have the time. No. Um, in this particular case, um, the trees were being felled. Um, because of a chain of correspondence started by local residents who were worried about the safety of them. The manager of the um, estate who'd been in post for some 15 years went to have a look at the the trees and he had a a very good working knowledge of trees so he wasn't a specialist And, and he thought they looked pretty ropey. So he got in a... Um, a firm of um, tree and landscape contractors the owner of the firm came and had a look at the trees and and, and he thought they looked unsafe as well but he wasn't an, um, an arboriculturist so he then got in a, an arboriculturist to do the climbing arborist to, to do the work and uh certain trees were pruned and certain trees were were felled I think four or five from memory were were felled but the whole point was it was a safety-led operation that that was why it was being done
0: On that point, Julian, um, I just wonder if we could just explain to people some of the exemptions, the requirement for a felling licence. So if a tree is immediately hazardous and can be deemed to be so by either if it's so obvious to the layman um, or if it needs a bit more investigation by somebody trained in a borough culture, there is an exemption, but not for ash dieback, not for disease.
2: Under the Forestry Act, the exemption is felling for the prevention of danger. So so these are trees which were considered by all those involved at this time to fall within that exemption. It's worth also pointing out that the local residents who are concerned with the safety of the trees lived in relatively recently built houses. And it occurred to me that maybe at the time of the houses were granted planning permission some three or four years previously, possibly there'd been a tree survey. So I went on the local authority's website and I found the tree survey. And it's identified these trees as having significant structural issues. Two of the five were graded U as in unretainable in in viable condition. And the uh, consulting tree officer on the planning application noted with approval, the tree survey accepted its findings and even commented that some of the trees were in poor condition. The same tree officer, by the way, who was central in moving the prosecution for the felling of the same trees wow now but let's see why that happened so why that happened was the estate had no knowledge of this tree preservation order which dated back to 19 early 1950s it just hadn't appeared on its radar and it had been undertaking work for years on trees without it ever becoming an issue never never applied for tpo consent wow. just didn't know how to how a tpo the estate manager had been there for 15 years he didn't know about it that's and bad. I think in 2017 the estate changed hand and it didn't come up in the conveyancing search. So there was some problem with how the TPO was recorded because it it wasn't spotted when the estate changed hand for well for many millions of pounds, probably tens of millions of pounds. Um, and nobody knew about this TPO. Now obviously enough, we all know ignorance is no defense of course.
0: But I have but to say is- can I can I interject there about tree preservation yeah. orders? There are so many tree preservation orders which are well, very, very old, and we know that the the layout of the land can change, can be built on, trees die. I mean, really, there is no excuse because um, all tree preservation orders should be reviewed. There was a real move on this about 10, 15 years ago, and I know there are a lack of resources, but surely it costs so much in wasted time, everybody's time, their tree owners' time, this is a case where it should have come up in a land registry search. Um, the tree officer's time, the tree owner's time. Really, I think it's unacceptable.
2: Yeah. yeah, no, it it is. And these legacy orders, they need to be sorted out. The local authorities should get a grip. Absolutely. I mean, one of the worst offenders is, is, is Barnett. It's got lots of 1950s legacy orders that cover entire postcodes. Yes. You know, just, just crazy. Um, and they've no idea what trees are protected. They really don't know. So going back to this this case, um, obviously people should have checked. Well, clearly there were administrative problems with with what happened, but it doesn't change the fact that the trees were being felled because they were genuinely considered to be unsafe. There was no gain involved. It was simply people trying to do responsible tree work. I mention this because this raises a very important question is, was it in the public interest to seek to prosecute that offence? So, so as you know, there are two prosecutorial tests to which prosecuting authorities are subject. One is, is there a realistic prospect of a conviction? And secondly, is it in the public interest? And, and, and whatever one might think about realistic prospect of a conviction, clearly, you'd have to ask the question about public interest. The contractors concerned were a firm of a reputable landscape and tree contractors. They did a lot of work for the local authority, in fact. They are one of their leading contractors. No suggestion that they weren't a good quality firm doing good quality work. Um, And good quality work in the public interest, maintaining school grounds and what have you. They decided they were going to to press on. Um, So, when we got the decision in the uh, Forestry Commission Highways England case that I was talking about a few minutes ago, we sought the opinion of of the same um, barrister who said that it was um, effectively identical uh, in terms of the law because these are trees that required a felling license. They were fell without a felling license, but that has timed out because it was a summary-only offence, and we were well after the six-month sell-by date of that of that particular prosecutorial um, reach. Uh, but there was no TPO consent applied for, nor was one necessary, nor could one have been granted for all the reasons given six, Section 15 Forestry Act. The local authority couldn't have even entertained an application for consent had they received one. So there was no prospect at all um, of the case going going forward because abusive abuse of process would have been applied for and no reason to expect it not to have been granted. So the local authority at that point said, well, actually, we're going to carry on. We're going to test this. We don't necessarily accept that that this applies because we think maybe the five trees that were felled don't together comprise the necessary five cubic metres of timber.
0: It doesn't take much, though, does it? I suppose if, were they thinking of excluding? Was it two trees that were in a very hazardous condition?
2: They never really, they never really got into the details of it. But, but from my point of view, if they accepted the trees were were dangerous, then they mm. couldn't prosecute for their felling. If they didn't accept they were dangerous, they required a felling license. So the local authority made noises about well the volume of, of timber, and it was then pointed out to them that. Interesting quirk of the law if you're going to rely on an exemption as a defendant, you own the burden of proof.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, Yeah.
2: the standard of proof, of course, becomes the balance of probability in a reverse burden of proof case, not the criminal standard of beyond reasonable doubt. But conversely, the local authority, if they were to say, Well, actually, the volume of timber was insufficient to trigger a license they would then have had to prove that yes and they accepted that at that point they couldn't they couldn't prove that so that prosecution was also dropped the main thing of course about the second case is they accepted the law as being correct from the first place so we now have a chain of logic now that goes uh, a court has handed down a decision that validates the interpretation of the law that that the uh, we advanced and then, in a second case, a prosecuting authority, which actually was led by a barrister, also accepted that interpretation of the of the law. So it's it's now, I think, really beyond any any plausible doubt, that if you have a tree that's felled, that either has a felling licence or doesn't but needed a felling licence, and if that tree is subject to a TPO, the local authority do not have jurisdiction to prosecute under the tree preservation order. And the reason I make this point and labour it is, A, to assist other people potentially faced with this situation, and B, because absolutely shockingly, the Forestry Commission has still not withdrawn Operations Note 52. So it's still up on its website giving the wrong advice, advice that has been falsified in court, and they're still maintaining that position. Quite remarkable.
0: Good heavens. So lots of things to say about that. First of all, presumably there are a number of cases, we don't know how many, where people have been prosecuted for a contravention to a tree preservation order where they've been prosecuted for felling a tree, protected by a tree preservation order, which would have required a felling license, irrespective of whether or not a felling license was applied for or granted. So there are people now who have a criminal record that they would not have had is this a miscarriage of justice,
2: Julian? What do you think about that? I, th- I think it only—it can only be a miscarriage of justice because if the prosecutions that led to their conviction were essentially an abusive process of the court concerned, albeit one that was not recognised at the time, then those convic- convictions must surely be unsafe. That is the, certainly the view of, of members of the legal profession I have talked to on, on this point. And it's worth just dwelling briefly on on what this means so if you are a um, a habitual or otherwise career criminal then it's my understanding that you accept the processes of the law as a cost of doing business if you however you're the ordinary citizen who for whatever reason has, has 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 been prosecuted for felling a tree with a tree preservation order on chances are you've not done it for gain chances are you've done it out of an administrative error or, or a misunderstanding of how exemptions apply or whatever it happens to be. Guilty still of, of contravening the TPO, apparently. But if in the cases where the uh, Forestry Act trumped the Town and Country Planning Act, you've been wrongly convicted um, under the latter, what, what has happened to you? So you've got a criminal record. So that means you, you can't emigrate to many countries that you might want to emigrate to. Maybe that only catches a small number of people. But what if you have a job that um, relies on integrity and trust, like, for example, you're a solicitor, and you've lost your job as a result of that. Uh, and, and then you can't pay your mortgage, so you've lost your house. Or maybe it's caused relationship strain and your marriage is broken up. And all these downstream effects from a correct prosecution are, unfortunately, the consequences of breaking the law. But where that prosecution was made incorrectly, then that's very much a burden on the citizen that they shouldn't be asked asked to bear and for which I imagine compensation will be due.
0: So the human cost of this as well, you talk about the emotional cost, the potential loss of employment, the potential loss of your property, the harm done to your own health caused by stress, the harm done to any relationships. I mean, this podcast is not advocating unlawful felling of trees but when you look at the law and you see that there is a miscarriage of justice and the human cost of that I wonder what's going to happen in the next few years might there be a number of cases coming back to court and a miscarriage of justice and might that result in a lot of compensation being paid?
2: Well I, I, think, that is, I think that is likely. Um... The first tree preservation order prosecution I ever worked on, I was expert witness for the prosecution, and three people were convicted, who, with this understanding of the law as it now is, should not have even stood trial, Uh, one of whom was in fact a solicitor working for a government department, uh, and he did indeed lose his his job as a result of his criminal conviction. So I know this is real. I know, I know this happens from, from my own experience. Um, the firm of solicitors acting for the defendant in both cases, um, the well-known firm of Goatley's, um, they are actively looking into potential for uh, miscarriages of, of justice. And, and if anybody listening to this podcast feels they may have been a victim of such, they should contact you or I can be put in touch with the correct people to look into this further
0: yes we can pass it on just in case anybody's wondering they might be listening to this thinking what well, is there any point in putting a tree preservation order on a tree outside of somebody's garden or or, or orch working orchard or churchyard well of course there is because you do not need a felling license to prune a tree so the tree preservation order protects it in that way
2: exactly lopping or topping Absolutely are outside the scope of the Forestry Act. Um, and the felling license is for is for felling. And if, for example, you got a bulldozer and pushed over a tree, that might be felling, but maybe one could have a, have a conversation about whether or not whether or not it is felling. Um, similarly, if you pollarded it, um, that, that wouldn't require a felling license. So, so TPOs still do have a place. But if you are, for example, a local authority contemplating putting a woodland tree preservation order on to stop the woodland being felled maybe thinking twice about that as to whether or not it's a necessary um, tool it does of course get you buy-in as a constable t you should do anyway uh, on the felling license application so for that reason potentially it it, it is it is worth doing
0: it seems to me that not just more generally there should be more collaboration between tree officers and the forestry commission imagine if they actually regularly had conversations i'm sure some do but again, we all work in silos. I'm very heartened by the good work of the Association of Tree Officers and the London Tree Officers Association, and I see different groups of tree officers sort of working together. That's really, really important to get good practice, because when you are that tree officer, you may be the only person in that local authority, and boy, are you busy. So really, to have all of that support around you from others, to find out what is the current changes in the law but in this case there's no change in the law it's been bought out into the open and made very clear but i know in my daily work that there are still tree preservation order approvals given to trees which actually need a funding license
2: i see a real really important role here for the institute of chartered foresters it it is of course holder of the charter for arboriculture and and for forestry um it is therefore absolutely um in the right place to to bring together forestry and arboriculture law as it were, and an understanding of it. It is a source of um regret that more tree officers are not um chartered arboriculturists i e members of the institute of chartered foresters. Hopefully that will change over time. I know there several already are, but we need more particularly senior officers heads of department as it were. Uh, to to be to be members of the icf um and to try there and, and and therefore the the icf can try and bridge this bridge this gap to make sure that those operating within our boriculture understand the law of forestry in so far as it applies to to them and i think that's a really important point
0: well we hope to bring out technical membership um later this year which will encourage all levels of people working in local authorities. who are all working incredibly hard so it's about this dissemination of information, which is really, you know, we're so grateful that you've come on this podcast today so that we can get this message out there um, and really just help people work effectively to protect trees in the right way, to make sure that uh, people, if they work in private practice, that our clients understand the planning license regulations because there's still a lot of work to be done there. People still want to clear fell a site. I went to a site recently within an urban area and the client said he wanted to clear fell the site. And I said, well, you would need a felling license. He said, what's one of those? And this is somebody who's in their 50s, has always worked in construction at a very senior level. So um, I hope that out of this, that people learn, that people talk to each other more, But I'm very saddened by the miscarriages of justice and the human cost of this. And I'm also concerned about the actual cost of this to hard-strapped local authorities that may come forward. I mean, a miscarriage of justice is a miscarriage of justice and it needs to be dealt with. But we also need to think about the consequences of that as well. Do you see the picture improving?
2: I'd like to say yes. But... Unfortunately, I, I think it has become clear in this episode that the Forestry Commission, particularly the, the regulatory affairs aspect of it, 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 is in urgent need of, of reform. I think, I think that is the, that is, that is the reality. The, 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 fact, the fact that they have maintained, despite me writing to them and pointing this out, that same wrong advice in their operations fit it the fact that's still current is, is, is quite remarkable. The fact they're still maintaining that felling licences run with the applicant not the land when that's contrary to all their published guidance and has no statutory basis whatsoever these are matters of very real concern and if you are a regulatory authority you have a 100 cast iron public duty to to administer the regulations fairly and reasonably and, and what you can't do is is act in this this capricious you know we know best sort of way that just just ignores the realities of the regulatory framework that you're supposed to be operating. So I think that, unless or until there is form of the Forestry Commission, I, I think things are going to be be difficult. Um, now I am I am um, uh, going to take this forward. Uh, happy to say now publicly that next month, um, when my current um, immediate deadline has, has uh, of expert evidence has has passed, I will be starting a formal complaint with the Forestry Commissioners into all of this uh, to look at why that felling license was granted with a known abrogation of uh, regulations and why uh, Forestry Commission went into writing to say there was no felling, li- felling licence applying to the land in question, et cetera. And all of this, I'm going to put to them and, and ask them to look into it because I think that's what we need now is a, is a proper inquiry into the conduct of this particular department so it can hopefully put its house in order. And that hopefully then will lead to some improvements.
0: I really hope that there can be a workshop about this with all the interested parties to have an open discussion. The law is a law, but I also think of the human side of that, of people learning and working together more. Um, I hope that happens, and I'm gonna be thinking about that to see what we can do so that people feel that they can move on from this in a really helpful way.
2: This would have been a very salutary experience uh, for the local authority having shell out more than a hundred thousand pounds in, in, in costs. Um, but my, the mental health of my client suffered very, very significantly. Of course. Um, I, the reason I have not mentioned any names uh, is so that I can actually say that, that he had to be sectioned under the mental health act as a danger to himself. Um, he sort of was on very significant amounts of, of, of medication. Um, and, um, That's a terrible position to be put into, um, because he knew that he'd done nothing wrong, and yet he stood to lose really quite a considerable amount, well above and beyond just 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 a fine or whatever. That's why local authorities contemplating, or or any prosecuting authority contemplating prosecution, needs to think very very carefully about the public interest test, and of course to make sure their ducks are properly and legally in a row before they start the ball rolling. I've represented a significant number of, of of defendants now. Um, facing TPO prosecution and not a single one has been convicted in the court due to quite significant gaps in the prosecution or the cases being pulled before they get there and my strong suspicion is that local authorities are not looking hard enough at the two prosecutorial tests before they press go and that's something I would absolutely urge them to do.
0: I'm going to flip that And I'd say there's also a problem of great under-resourcing of local authorities enforcement officers and tree officers, and there are offences taking place, albeit maybe not with tree preservation orders, but general planning lapses in protection of trees, which nobody has the time to pick up on and actually should be picked Mm -hmm. up on. So it's a very polarised and disjointed picture across the nations, and it's not all that local authorities are, are, are prosecuting too much. Sometimes they're not prosecuting enough. Sometimes they simply do not have the resources to see what's actually happening. It's a very, very patchy picture. Lots of people are not looking after their trees correctly. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. This will spark lots of debate and discussion. If people want to find out more, where should you direct them? Forestry Commission website. The Forestry Commission
2: website.
0: Well, I I would I would like to sort of counter that and say that the actual felling license guide, getting permission, I think is very clear. clear. Yes,
2: that is a good place to start. Um, We we just need to straighten out this one particular piece of guidance, and and when that's done, then they can go to the Forestry Commission website. But but not until they have revised operations note 52 the the date is 15th of july 2020 so if people see a a date from this year then hopefully that'll be that'll be correct but um if in doubt
1: you could always ask you or i hit the subscribe button to guarantee you don't miss an episode and you can follow us on
0: twitter at the tree lady 67
1: instagram tree lady talks
0: facebook sharon hosegood associates
1: or send an email to noel at treeladytalks.co.uk
0: Thank you very much for your time, Julian. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again.
2: Nice, and and, and I believe this this may be at least for the moment the last Tree Lady Talks podcast. So, so thank you very much for all you you and Noel have done bringing these podcasts to uh, to your audience. Many arboriculturists and, and beyond have had dozens of hours of happy listening. So, thank you both very much.
1: Thank you, I'm much appreciated well thank you very much julian it's very nice of you to say so we've certainly always enjoyed doing all the episodes of the tree lady talks podcast it's been great fun hasn't it
0: absolutely great fun so
1: in the meantime it's goodbye for me
0: and it's goodbye for me
1: If you're from the Forestry Commission and would like the right to reply, please get in touch with Noel at treeladytalks.co.uk.